You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I just want to let you know that our friends at Outdoor Edge have partnered with some great brands to help bring your fall full circle with their field to freezer to fire giveaway. Here's how you enter. Go to their Facebook page and sign up to win some awesome prizes and packages from brands including Yeti, Weston, Bradley Smokers, and more. These are some awesome products that will help you process your game, keep your game in the freezer, and eventually cook it for your table. You have until January 15th to sign up, so take advantage of that. Outdoor Edge in the Field to Freezer to Fire giveaway. Go to their Facebook page and make it happen. And if you decide to purchase any products from the website, enter the discount code NATION30. That's the word NATION with the number 30 after that, no spaces, Nation 30, and you will receive 30% off your purchase. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys. Welcome back, Land and Legs Podcast. Adam here. Matt is here from afar. From afar I'm here. Um, you're in Virginia currently. Right? I am. Yes. Yep. I'm out visiting family and uh, made a return visit to a client's property up in Maryland um, one day while while out here. But pretty much on a on a little family getaway before the craziness really breaks through. Um, because we were just reviewing the schedule here prior to hitting record. It's like, whoa, let's, let's yeah. get caught up on where, where we're each going to be over the next couple of weeks because it's about to just break loose. No doubt. Which I is think, a good thing. Yeah, in Jan, J- January alone, I've got, I've got, well, I've, I've had, uh, I've got, I, I was guess I was going to say Missouri, but that was December 30th. I, I worked property in Missouri, but I've got central Missouri, I've got Oklahoma, Indiana, um, multiples in Oklahoma, and then I'm trying to remember what I had. At th- oh, in Iowa. Yep. So I've got Iowa, Indiana, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Maryland, North Carolina, Oklahoma, North Texas, and Georgia at the very end. So yeah. it's like we're all over. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> We're all over. Yep. And so anyway, um, 
yeah, it's going to be fun. But, you know, of all the traveling, of all the visiting properties, there's also the ability for us to work with landowners um, and leasees, hunting club members um, to do our virtual property evaluations, which is basically an hour-long online classroom where we go through pictures, maps, and discuss various goals and how to reach those goals, whether it be hunting strategy or food plot strategy or habitat enhancement or just the overall land architecture and land restoration that we specialize in. Um, We do all that through virtual property evaluations online. We record it, send that recording to the the client after the hour, two-hour conversation. And uh, that's a great way for us to assist even with limited time and uh, it's it's a more affordable option than than our full consults and and I think that it it allows people to be able to like who are on a path to come to us and say hey I just want to make sure before I before I dive in a little bit deeper does this all make sense does this all sound good before I take that next step into really developing or really transforming the property here's kind of what I've put together as a plan what do you think? What would you tweak? What would you do? Um, I, I've seen that work very well for, for some individuals too. You know, doesn't have to be this master planning that, that we're trying to squeeze in in a couple hours time frame. It's for those who are really well on their way of transforming property and they just want that additional confidence moving forward with the plan that, that they've been able to derive themselves. That's right. So um, I, I, we did a bunch of them back when all the shutdowns uh, shutdowns happened in March mm-hmm. and April. Um, and so, you know, we're, we've done a few throughout the summer, but, man, we've been so – try to focus on uh, the regular consults and keep those going um, that we oftentimes forget to even talk about that service because we're so busy with the other services. But That's we right. certainly can do those and help you guys. Um from with our virtual property valuations absolutely there's a so, link at landlegacy.tv if you click on the consultation tab and scroll to the bottom you'll see them absolutely so adam what i don't think we've really caught back up i guess after last week's podcast when, when we're talking about the the vegetation series um what was your feedback that you got from people who reached out to you regarding that um initial discussion of grasses in particular i've had several people sending me uh i knew the free hat would get some response Uh, (laughs) yeah i've had several people sending me other pictures of uh of things they found on their farm i've had some guys say i love hearing you rip on the miscanthus gigantus um what else uh just overall positive people enjoying hearing the different approach and and I guess the overall management with different species, uh, different plant communities. So it's all been good. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And it kind of, you know, much of the same on, on my end and more or less like the breakup of, of trying to do a series of, of a continuum of uh, an education that people can always, you know, package this together and revert back to, hey, if you want to start to learn things, you know, from an identification process, um, an emphasis process, 
go here. Like, just download this series and work your way through it, and you'll get there. Just use this as a foundation. Um, so that's what we intended this to be. It's good to see just within week one, several people reaching out with with feedback saying, yep, thumbs up, keep it going, excited to see what next week is going to bring um, and what they can learn. Um, in, in the way we broke it out, grasses. Um, but I, be, I did to, get a really funny one. Okay, from I'm a scared. Listener, <laughs> from a listener in Oklahoma. He sent me a text. And him and his wife had just gotten to the truck. And we were going through the part of the podcast where we were breaking down the different types of grasses. Um, and and his wife busted out laughing. He was like, they sound like the movie scene um, when they start going through all the different ways that you can fry shrimp, bowl of shrimp, shrimp casserole. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> That's funny. and I had, I had to laugh out loud on that one. Yeah. But um, all, all positive feedback. And I think this week is going to be hopefully a lot of the, the same reactions because we're talking about Forbes and before you go into that, I did, when you say that the movie scene, so like when somebody starts listing out things, there's basically two movies that come to mind. Like you can do fried yeah. shrimp, boiled shrimp, garlic shrimp, barbecue shrimp, or you can go with the Geo Dirt fireworks stand scene. Yes, uh, yeah. Where it's like, yeah. you're going to stand there owning a fireworks stand, tell me. Uh, you know, you, whistling you bung holes, no spleen splitters, yeah. whisker biscuits, honky yeah. lighters, husker yeah. do's, husker don'ts. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Yeah, that was that was a college one. So yeah, that's both both scenes, both, both scenes, scenes top yeah. notch. <laughs> yeah, can't uh, go wrong. Joe yeah. Dierte. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so i'm excited to be able to talk about forbes for the next 50 minutes because i don't know if there's another podcast that's just devoted a a whole hour to forbes and what the heck they do for wildlife and i and i go back to like my days in college of a biology degree concentration wildlife management and i don't even remember there being a class talking about wildlife management that was like devoted to or that for a week at least we were talking about broadleaf plants yeah and it's like well how how misinformed or lack of education about just forbes in general this wide spectrum uh, of vegetation that that um would fall under this broadleaf flowering plant that's herbaceous and, and I, we don't talk that much about them or emphasize them in, in, a, in an educational setting. What a shame. Well, there's no disrespect to a lot of the universities, colleges out there that that have a wildlife management degree. Uh, you know, they offer that degree because Correct. there are some that there's some who probably that do, do that probably do. And so yep. we're not taking anything away from those universities uh, Mississippi State, Georgia, uh, Tennessee. Tennessee, yeah, and there's there's this, yeah. Yeah, there's probably Clemson. a few more, but I think of like you know the 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 college I went to uh, that you know had wildlife yeah. management. Of course, I was an ag guy for for this very reason is 
you know, I had botany, which is the same course that a lot of wildlife management people will have and a lot of agriculture people, which is why I had it. But, um, you know, we're listing out all these different plants and we're studying different plants or things. But yet I remember just sitting there going, I, you know, there's all these plants. I just want to know why I should like this one from a wildlife standpoint. Like, Mm -hmm. why is this plant one that we want to, should talk about, and how it's more beneficial than some of these others if we're looking at it from the stance of white-tailed deer. And so I think there's a lot of people that deal with that. And 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 this might be one of the most... But the the one of the times where a landowner finds analysis paralysis happening on a more regular basis when it comes oh, yeah. to trying to ID the plants and whether they're good, bad, indifferent, and before you know it, they're going, nah, I don't know. I'll stick to the food plots. Correct. And <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and so I, I I think with these with covering Forbes. Uh, it is going to be fun to talk about the benefits and different ones that we like, um, and then all the different categories that they could fall into. But I, I'll say this: as we work through this series, it's kind of fun—a little bit fun, but a little bit sometimes where I'm like ADHD overload. Where for us, we almost never do series. Because typically every single week we have a brand new topic or two. Most of the time it's two where it's like, this happened this week. That's this podcast topic. Yep. Where doing the series, I'm ready. Like, I want to cover all this and I want to stay on this. But yet in just two weeks alone, I've had four podcast topics come up that I'm like, got to wait till we get through the series to cover it. <laughs> yeah. And this is, it, it, man, it's just like, this is foundational foundational if we can lay out this information then all these other all these other podcasts let's just say the four that you came up with or, or you know encountered thought about whatever will have more significance because of the foundation that's that's built upon with with the series and breaking yeah. it down like it, it just man if you're gonna if you're gonna manage land you're gonna manage habitat for specific wildlife species you have to know vegetation and plant species just yeah. period there's and, no and way around it if you if you want to say oh going around it so much absolutely i mean that's really what a big part of our specialty is 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 going back to native landscape management um because you know we see huge value in it um from not just deer standpoint but all the other native species um mm-hmm. and and it's a very, it's a lot more affordable than going, nope, you need to clear out all these flat ridge tops. They're going to all be food plot and uh, everything else can be left unmanaged. Uh, that's really not the way we like to approach it. And so helping people identify and learn to identify all these plants. How many landowners do you deal with now, Matt, uh, consulting or, or just in social media in general that are, are utilizing apps like plant snap and our favorite iNaturalist. how many of them are, are telling you that they've started using that because they heard it on our podcast oh a ton yeah a ton. i mean just 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 the just the desire that many people have have um now been like they're educated to the fact that they know that they don't know what they should know 
when it comes to plant IDs. So they're they're finding those resources out there, such as PlantSnap and iNaturalist, and beginning to use them. Um, and then when they can't, they may still send it to you or I, which is fantastic because that means that they're looking for the answers. And that's the most important thing is you've got to, to place the significance of identification and then the roles in which these plants play. Absolutely. That's a priority. Priority. Yep. And uh, I, I hear it all the time. I heard it this week. Guys doing it. It's it's just hugely important. And so it's it's nice to know guys are listening to the podcast, obviously, and they're using that information to go make their farm better because they're IDing. I worked with a guy this week that had started uh, using iNaturalist and was IDing um, like so we went out into one of his food plots and he had uh he had alfalfa. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Oh cool, is it around a pretty alfalfa?" No. And I was like, "Oh really? What do you do to control the weeds?" That's just deer food. I just let it go. I love that. And I was like, yeah. "Really?" I said, "And your alfalfa?" He goes, "I'll spray out the grass like millet, foxtail millet that's coming in um mm-hmm. or any other like Johnson grass." He said, "I'll spray that out." And I'll spray some sort of like 2,4-D or Raptor if the broadleaves get really, uh, they get really bad. He said, but most of the time the deer are eating it back just like the alfalfa. And I haven't really, I've had it for five years and not really ever had much of a problem. He said, it's, it's just deer food. And I'm like, yeah. I, I couldn't say it better myself. And so, you know, we walked it. out there in it and it had, it had mare's tail and it had uh, some different forbs that we'll cover today. Um but there were deer brows and alfalfa looked great, and it was just like, okay, yeah, can't complain with this. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, do, so you, do you want to uh, step into kind of the, the definition of, of what a forb is? Because I feel like we better. We're 15 minutes in. <laughs> we, we, we better, number one, because of time, but number two, because forb is a word that people hear but don't but I feel like oftentimes don't wrap their head around what that means and what that does entail. And, and I, I try and just keep it super, super simple in explaining it in the field, but a forb is essentially a broadleaf plant. So last week we talked about grasses and, and the definition there was a very slender leaf or leaflet. Mm-hmm. This is a broad leaf flowering plant that is yeah. herbaceous. So it does not have very much, um, woody stem or structure component to this plant. Yeah. Um, so it is very vascular, often green for a long, long time throughout the growing season. They can be an annual, perennial, or biennial. Um, but just boil it down to a broad leaf that flowers yep. that isn't woody. Yep. And that a lot of That's times their above ground growth largely or totally dies back in the winter if it's a perennial. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And so, you know, that that's, you know, last week we covered grass and this week we're covering Forb. And I feel like in the world of social media land management, um, grasses get so much attention. Uh, we yeah. covered that a little bit. Like they're, yep, sure and, and frankly, they're overrated. Um, yep. You know, they have their place or they're hugely important. But the fact that we put so much attention on grasses oh, makes them overrated. 
from the standpoint of in comparison to some of the others out there. And I feel like Forbes are some of the they're the, they're the most. It's either Forbes or Shrub being the most the biggest Central. underdog underdog of this of this series. Um, did you like that? Did you like that 2020 vocabulary word I just threw in there? I didn't hear what you said. I said they're essential. Oh yeah, yeah. Like like Forbes are the essential worker of 2020. You think wildlife? They are. That is them in the whole big grand scheme of things. Well, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off Forbes. there, Matt, and I'm gonna say that every single person and every single job out there is essential. So True. take that East Coast True. theory and shove it. Um, <laughs> That's not an East Coast theory. <laughs> Everybody's essential, um, whether you're trying, if they're trying to shut you down or not. But um, these, yeah, Forbes, hugely essential um, and and hugely unutilized on a lot of landscapes. Uh, a lot, and 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 frankly, a lot of farms that are focused on growing big deer. You don't hear near enough talk about Forbes, especially from the native variety. Absolutely. And I was going to say, basically, you know, add into that conversation is we do travel a lot. We see a lot of different properties with different goals. Largely, they're they're deer oriented. And um, one of the biggest things, I think, at the end of the day that um, we could boil our services down to is trying to add more Forbes to the property in various ways and techniques through yeah. old field management, timber management, Forbes or shrubs. Woodland. Oh yeah. 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 Huh. It, it, you know, prescribed fire, adding diverse, you know, all these different things. We, we typically will not find a property that has enough Forbes on it is, is this what I'm saying. If you know, if you were to blindfold me and throw me on a plane or in a truck and, and drive me a little ways and drop me off and say, okay, keep the blindfold on, but describe what you see. I'd be like, are we in a forest landscape or in an open plains landscape? And if you said forest, I'd, I'd say, well, without seeing it, I'll take a gander and I'll say, you need to thin the timber, you need to promote forbs, you need to promote shrubs, and remove the invasives. <laughs> yeah. And you could almost do that going to grasslands and say, okay, we need, to get, we need to knock back the rank grass, we need to promote shrubs, we need to promote forbs, and we need to remove the invasives. Bingo. And, and, and that right there is, a, is enough summary to say forbs are important (laughs) yeah or or we we need to we need to manage the aggressive native species like eastern red cedar uh would be a big one Mm -hmm. yeah so i i think everyone has heard you know they've heard the term for now we've got a definition to it yep Uh, and and now i think it's you know let's start incorporating some examples of various Forbes that people may come encounter with or have heard about and then yep. say, Oh, that that's a Forb. I got it. That's yeah. what they're doing. And, and I think the way we did it last week with grasses, we we talked about, you know, annuals, biennials, perennials, but then we also covered, you know, the food value, the cover value. We'll get into that with specific species later on. Yeah. We've got to cover, you well, know, provide some examples first. You know, off. one of the big differences, though, between your uh, grasses and the forbs is the fact that we covered annual perennial 
and there's not. Yes. I don't think there's any biannuals. So, well, in Ford world, there are a ton. Uh-huh. And so that yep. will be one of the big differences you see in um, Forbes versus Grasses and just these two podcasts back to back. To back. Um, before we start listing them off, I have one more note to add that yep. when it comes to the Forbes, and it kind of goes with what we just talked for the last five minutes, but Forbes are – when I was growing up, my dad always had a Winchester Model 94 3030, and he would always say that right there, the gun that won the West. And I would always kind of just laugh. So that that line, the the thing that won the West, is like that's what made us something big. And and I think of like uh, the plants that the plant that really like provided out West and across the country, the plant that won the country or provided so much for the world or the the, the animals was the forb. When you think about it from the standpoint of providing year round, almost year round food to great cover. Not just for deer, but all kinds of different species. You basically have a plant that can feed deer um, that was feeding the deer long before crops. And I'm talking conventional crops like corn and soybeans. Yep. And long yep. before food plots. This is the plant that did a lot of it. This is the one that put the animals on their back and carried them. And uh, now in conjunction with shrubs and trees and, and uh, grasses cover. But this is one that's hugely important and I think a lot of people fall into the trap of going, well, why is it so underutilized now? And so let's take a step back in time and then also look at current day. And you can drive down the highway and find uh, that there is <laughs> a landscape dominated by perennial grasses and perennial weeds, uh, specifically invasive species like Cerisa lespedeza. Um, we're becoming a landscape that doesn't have enough disturbance that promotes these forbs. And if you look at historical uh, landscapes, you had, you know, massive herds. We're talking specifically in, in kind of the, the Great Plains, Midwest, and other parts of the country when there was still massive bison herds that just in that, just just with that group of animals would create a disturbance that would promote forbs. And um, and then you look at just deer and 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 uh, and elk helping with the disturbance. There's all kind of disturbance that would promote forbs. So um, you can't look at the landscape now and say there's not that many forbs. They wouldn't provide that much. They get choked up pretty easy. You can't compare it compare it because there is not the large scale disturbance that we had historically with both grazing animals, large herds, as well as uh, wildfires. So, well, the- I I have this note for later in the podcast, but you bring up something that I think is, is kind of important to um, to talk about, and, and I, I'm going to leapfrog it back up to the top here. But I talked we, we we talked about it the other day, Adam. Um, I can't remember where I heard this, but everyone's familiar with like you know, the Great Plains and how much of the, the tall grass prairie is actually, you know, a remnant that, you know, we're talking under 1% still remains of what it, what it encompassed. And yeah. so that, that ecosystem is largely just destroyed and, and destroyed from a, a manner that really we're not going to get back um, yeah. based on, you know, disking and herbicide usage, you know, it's just gone urbanization all three yeah big ones all all of it and and so when we look at 
where a lot of Forbes have a potential of growing. Um, we look at like timbered areas now, not, not that they have always been forested areas, but there is a lot of different Forbes that can grow in woodlands and in savannas. And again, when we go and we look at where those areas are, yes, some of those have obviously been lost, but there's a lot of areas, a lot of forested areas that have not had that herbicide urbanization or that deep tillage that has removed that seed bank of rich forb diversity what really has happened is it was like there was trees growing fire was removed now we have a lot more trees growing because nothing was setting them back and we have this huge supply of um you know seeds acorns hickory nuts whatever and now there's trees just growing absolutely everywhere where they hadn't been before but again the soil hasn't been disturbed in those sites those rich diversity of forbs those areas can still be achieved like we can get those things back if we go through and we manage things appropriately and to me it's like there's a humongous emphasis again on like tall grass prairies but like the forgotten aspect of, hey, there's other fragile ecosystems that we could potentially get back if we do the right things and get them back with more success of just a restoration instead of like a – we have to go and completely like replace all the seed that was gone. Yeah, We have areas that we can totally get back with the right management. And Forbes are going going to grow there stuff that yeah. we may have never seen before. Yeah, and it's like that's super encouraging. Yeah, and there's I, people that are listening to podcasts who are living in those areas right now. It's like cut the trees. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, you know, you say that, and and I, it brings up my head starts spinning to another thing to note, and you know, when you talk about less than one percent or one percent of the actual tall grass short grass and tall grass and short grass plains that you read about in the history books um have been almost completely gone through the tillage and herbicide use and urbanization and how you know the the chances of that ever coming back like that those mm-hmm. are the main three threats to to that uh to 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 bringing back those plains those native ecosystems out there but when you look at the forest standpoint the, the Ozark Mountains or, uh, you know, various places across the eastern United States and Midwest that, that has timber. I think some of the biggest threats that we're facing here in, the, in, their, uh, in, in these timbered areas is not just urbanization, but because of urbanization, invasive species. And so yeah, I think a lot of times people will forget that, you know, just because you see invasives doesn't mean, oh, big whoop, it's whatever. It's like we're completely going to – we could see in our lifetime forests, cha- forest cycles change completely and go from a oak forest to the next generation oak forest to oak forest. Once those die out, we have invasives, and there's not – we would have to completely go in and gut it to get those oak forests back. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of part of the scary standpoint and why we should be looking at promoting diversity and restoring native landscapes um, in the in the timbered areas. Because not only do you get great plant communities, but you can help fight back invasives that are being horribly, uh, that are being uh, just playing havoc on, on our native species. 
Um, well, we we'd also just read research the other day of of you know this isn't just an invasive species from from a habitat standpoint of of upland species, but you know there this was specifically talking about uh, bush honeysuckle um, and its prevalence along waterways. Yeah. And when the rapid, let's say, um, decomposing of the leaves, was removing the oxygen in the water yes. and was being horribly uh it was basically killing killing uh aquatic life yeah and from, so from, from top to bottom yeah so when they, all these creeks were lined with bush honeysuckle that influx at at you know november time frame robbed precious oxygen in colder waters and it's like whoa that's they're seeing a decrease in aquatic life because of invasives so yeah. it's like this thing is dynamic it's not again just oh we don't have good bedding for deer we don't have good shrub cover um that you know deer are foraging on like this goes beyond just that um i guess initial game species management side of things we're talking about yeah so let's go ahead and start with the uh annuals okay so annuals we've got and hopefully some of these are going to sound familiar to someone and be like, oh, okay, got it. Yeah, that's four in the annual category. But we've got common ragweed, giant ragweed, stick tights, mayor's tail, and lamb's quarter. Yeah. Those are all producing a seed within one single growing season, dropping the seed, and then that seed produced in the one growing season is next year's crop. <laughs> if anybody's been around giant ragweed much, think of the guys down at uh, clients in North Texas where you can oh, yeah. look at a 12-foot, and even our buddy Colby Sharp over at Quail Forever, he sent me pictures, oh, goodness, a few weeks back of some uh, giant ragweed that he'd found in North North Louisiana that was like 14-foot tall, something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, a seed to 14-foot tall. There is a lot of energy in that kind of plant. I've a seen ton. common ragweed make six foot tall, and oh, yeah. Yeah. and and yeah. not only just six foot tall, but like lots of branches coming off, so tons Absolutely. of leaves for forage, a massive umbrella shape um, that puts off a ton of seed for birds uh, like bobwhite quail. So uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a reason why we love ragweed when it comes to the fact that it doesn't require much fertilizer and it can grow really quickly. Well, it, that's that's the value, too, of an annual when you compare it to things such as perennials, given the variations in growing seasons that that anybody can have at any given region of the country. You're never guaranteed, you know, your average rainfall. But the role of an annual is it's so much energy packed into these seeds that they're they're going to do all that they can every yeah. single year to grow as much and as big and produce as much seed as they can. So there's yeah. like, it's, it's like they took monster energy drink every single year from a species yeah. or a plant and just grow. Good and Lord willing stop. and the creek don't rise. It's going to grow and make seed in one year. Yes. And yep. if it doesn't make it, well, all shucks. Hopefully there's enough other plants in that area that can make seed to provide the next generation because it's got one shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so there's some annuals, some, you know, you're, 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 a couple of those are going to jump out to you. Like, oh yeah, okay. I've, I've heard of that from a, from a Forbes standpoint. There's some examples of, of annuals. But you know, when biannuals, I look at these biannuals, you're, you've listed yeah. off the, like first thing out of the gate, you're going to turn some people off and you start listening, especially the non-native one um, at sure. the very beginning. 
Uh, and the next word is like you just listed off curse words for biennials. <laughs> we got wild carrot, or some people call queen ant's lace. Thistle. Which so many queen ant's lace, non-native. Just uh, yep. just throw that out there. Thistle. There's a lot of really bad terminology with thistles, but uh, there mm-hmm. are native varieties. White yep. under leaves, but thistle. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Prickly lettuce. Yeah, which a lot of people probably wouldn't like because it's prickly. Well, and it, a lot of people will probably mistake it for um, a, a thistle. Like, it's oh, like, totally. Like, yeah. Oh, that's a shorter. That's a shorter thistle. But honestly, yeah. deer. We we see a lot of browsing on on prickly lettuce. Oh, tons. Um, deer love it. Black-eyed Susans. Yep. Is a biennial. Yep. And then sweet clover. I got one more for you. What you got? Uh, Mullen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep, yeah, which another non-native Lamb's brought here. over in the 1700s. Uh, Charmin of the Plains, Mullen. Yep. Um, sweet clover being another one that's non-native that uh, deer absolutely torch, but it's, you know, there's some literature out there that shows it being pretty invasive into uh, native prairie settings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those, there's a lot of farmers that plant sweet co- clover. <laughs> so it's like, I used to like it, and then I did more research, and uh and it was like, oh, I'm not going to promote this anymore. Yeah. yeah. So so th- these are the plants that basically it's kind of like a two-cycle growing season for these things to be able to produce yeah. their seed. Yeah. So they're going to be in a, in a smaller, typically rosette stage for one year and then sprout, you know, directly vertically up out of that rosette, you know, circular, flat against the ground stage. And then grow and produce uh, a seed yeah. for the next year. So it's and I, and two, I bring up, two growing seasons. I bring up mullen. Yeah, two-year cycle kind of thing. Uh, I bring up mullen for, for that standpoint, that analogy, mm-hmm. because uh, if anybody knows what mullen is, uh, it, it's basically a very fluffy. You know, I said Charmin of the Plains for a reason because you almost grab it and you're like, now this is something in nature I could use its toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, like I've heard lamb's ear because it's that soft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, just yeah. super, super, uh, super soft. Um, and and if you've been around it much, you'll be like, man, you talking about that real tall stuff that makes that almost like corn cob shape uh, head on it Flower. when it gets about yeah. six foot tall or even taller? And it's like, yeah, same stuff. And you're like, but I thought that stuff grew short. And that's because you probably saw it in the first year uh, when it was mm-hmm. just a very small little clump. And so you can find this a lot, too, where um, – and being non-native, uh, you can see it get pretty pretty stinking aggressive at times. And I can think sure. of a few few times where one year it'd be a beautiful clover field, and you're like, oh, I got a little bit of mullein. Yeah, that's uh, whatever. Next year you come back and you're like, oh, my goodness, this I stuff's everywhere. That. And you're yanking these big old plants out, and you're like, what in the world? And you're like, man, I should have just dug them last year when they were little bitty things. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So – Mullen being a big biannual, but um, yeah, there's there's uh, <laughs> we listed off thistle, wild carrot, or Queen Anne's lace, mullen, sweet clover. I mean, my goodness, um, why don't we just just throw all the all the stuff that people hate out there? Um, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. But those are some of the most common biannuals that people would find. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, perennials, and, yeah. and, and there's so many, but um, old field aster. A lot of golden rods, um, wing stem, beggar's lice, partridge bee. Yeah, old field aster is one of those that I want. It, it kind of flies under the radar all the time 
But once you like see it and you're like, eh, it's a little aggressive. It, it can crowd out. Uh, then you're like, I can't unsee it. It's everywhere I turn around. There's old field aster taking and kind of really kind of spreading its shoulders and pushing its elbows out, trying to take a trying to take a hold. What's always amazing to me is is when you look, and we're going to talk about this here in just a little bit about you know palatability, um, you know concentrate selectors, which that's that's the way deer forage. When I look at old field aster and deer hammer it, like they will browse it very aggressively. But I like there's nothing of the plant that I'm like, wow, that's what they're after. It just doesn't look that appealing because it has a it it, it actually like it tends to have a more woodier structure to it, but branches out and the leaves aren't like great big. But boy, do they eat it. And it's like weird but anyhow it comes on i think like that july time frame that's that's when it really gets pounded when yeah. it gets that woodier structure a lot of times when it's getting bra- browse like crazy you don't really notice it because there's not a big noticeable flower correct and so you notice I, when i notice it a lot is september when it's this little kind of green stem with little white blooms everywhere yep it is it is definitely a late growing season flowering plant but it it does grow everywhere and thank goodness it does because again you're pounded it's like wow we can kind of rely on that going in from a late growing season standpoint of man a lot of things are are not palatable old field aster is if yeah. you've got that component in, in an old field situation or in a in a um, edge of food plots, edge feathered areas, what have you, yeah. they're going to be rounded. Well, the thing about, you know, just list out those first two perennials. you got old field aster and then you've got goldenrod, which there's a yeah. bajillion goldenrods out there. But yeah. some of the most common ones seem to be – they come on a lot earlier, almost spring – well, they do come on in the spring. And so just yep. in those two, you got Oldfield Aster, which really starts getting hammered in July. But in Goldenrod, you get it. It can be getting hammered in April. Oh, oh well, we, we see that a lot. And so just just those two, you've got two months yep. right there of food. And then Oldfield Aster, of course, doesn't get that tall. But if a deer beds down, it can be two, three foot tall. So a deer has that ability to utilize it as cover. Now, I wouldn't want a whole field of it. Um, but Goldenrod being... Five six foot tall, they could bed down in it. I think of Oldfield Astor's like the prime candidate for like if I'm a doe, I want to drop a fawn in that. Yes, yeah. that that type of that window, you know, June early June time frame, it is the right structure, it's the right height, and boy, it is coming on and gonna be food quick, um, yeah. if not already by that time in, in some areas. So yeah, um, yeah, it's it, it's a it's a winner for sure. But those are. Those are the perennials that that really kind of jump out of the page at a lot of people. And those cover such a big region across the country. Uh, Most places, let's say, east of Kansas, um, you're going to be able to encounter those species uh, to some some degree or another. For sure. Um, You know, so when we talk about, like, Forbes in general, obviously they do they do two things opposed to grasses last week we talked like there's really not many varieties of grasses that um offer food value there's some that are 
within states is they offer food value, but really not. That's not a, that's not a trait of grasses. When we talk about Forbes, man, we're talking food and we're talking cover. And so rather than breaking out the species like warm and cool seasons and native versus non-native, really, we're just going to go straight to like the food value of things and then break it down into the cover um, aspects of forest because we talk about maximizing acreage on wildlife properties, whether you have a thousand or you have a hundred or you have 10 acres, you want the species growing on the place, the property to do both of those things. You want them to offer food and cover. That's how you maximize property. Yeah. So when it comes to food value, are you, are you, are you good to move on Adam? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. When it comes to food value, I think, well, I'll ask you this. What's the first thing everyone thinks of when they think of food for deer? Oh, they automatically think food plots or crop fields. It's corn, soybeans, alfalfa, clover. Uh, yeah. Maybe turnips or fall fall annual blends. Um, but that's where everybody's head goes. And that's why I used, I used to ask clients this question a lot. I don't do it much now because most of them know the gig. Um, and so they'll that they know my cards. And so when I ask them, they, by this time, they, by the time they've heard of, they listen to the podcast and they already kind of probably have a, somewhat of an idea of where I'm going. So I used to ask the question, okay, what's the number one, what's the number one thing you could do to promote, uh, the plant that you could promote for wildlife? Um, like what do you think can provide more benefit, uh, year round? And typical answer would be alfalfa, clover, soybeans, um, it seemed like those were the ones that people always went to. And I'd always be like, why? Like, what kind of cover value does that that, that provide? What kind of, uh, what is, what is, how is a fawn going to survive in that? How is a, how is a, a deer going to have much food in a soybean field um, from the biggest stress period of the, of the year? Late, most of the time, late winter, early spring. By that point, the soybeans are gone and there's no cover and, um, they have to wait till a farmer plants them again. And so like your deer are going to starve if that's their only food source. And so then I would go to things like Forbes, um, and just say like, you know, there's a lot bigger window here. And so, uh, I think too many people think about the non-native supplements like crop fields and food plots long before they think about Forbes. No, without a doubt, without a doubt. So, and, and one of the let's say components of food is everyone just focuses like strictly on protein. Yeah. Like it's the only thing to consider when, when we're looking at food and absolutely (laughs) there it's important. Um, But, but another term that I think we need to bring into um, the podcast and, and discuss and it's kind of researchy scientific but it still has significance when if people are doing their own research um they need to be able to understand like the backstory of it but it's it's you'll see it as an acronym adf acid detergent fiber and it's it's essentially just the measure of a plant component that forages that are least digestible so it's like the lignin content, the cellulose, the stuff that is just tough to break down. Essentially, there's a score given. You'll see it again, ADF, and then the score. Um, and that's just a measurement of the plant components 
that are least likely to be digested um, by any given animals. So yeah. it's it's a it's a way to score the the palatability of a plant. And yeah. so we're going to go through a bunch of different plants and talk about their crude protein level as well as acid detergent fiber. Um, because again, the, there's some correlation to selectivity then. Yeah. Of no the doubt. plant. No doubt. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm ready to keep going. I didn't have the anything other, to add on that. The, the other aspect uh, yet, that's anyway. important to, to mention is like protein content. I know we talked about on the podcast many times in the past and then with clients, you know, supplemental feeding always comes up, but, but really some of the most intense protein content that at any stage of a whitetail um, that they're really going to need is when they're fawn and it's topping out it's 20% of their, their diet. And that's, that's the top. And we're, so when we really are thinking, you know, bucks growing antlers or, or does with that are lactating or carrying fawns really 16, 17% of their, their uh, diet needs to be protein based. And so when we're seeing things, all these cool supplemental feeds that are in the 35% and high twenties, it's like, yeah, well that's way above what they really need. So, so when we're reading what these forbs are in their crude protein levels, keep the requirements, the dietary requirements in the most stressful time periods for deer in mind. So if like the max is 16, 17, that they're just have to have in their diet. When we see some of these that are 17, 18, 19, 25, 13, what have you, most of those are all meeting the requirements. And so it doesn't have to be this 30% crude protein. Yeah. It, not, it's not like it gets you that much more. Like yeah. the requirement is 16 to, for, for their body as an individual to reach maximum potential. Just because you can get 35 doesn't mean 18 is bad. Bigger, it's, it's like the bigger isn't always better. Yeah, number kind of. You're thing. typically gonna have to pay for that too. Right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and and you know, hey, we're always gonna talk about diversity, and so some plants they might have a little bit lower crude protein, or they might have a little bit higher. But deer being a concentrate selector, uh, I'll just hit the definition real quick before we jump in there. It, it's they're concentrating on very specific portions of plants at specific times of the year. And so it's like the stages of plants, that's what they're nibbling on. It's not like, oh, they're going to see a uh, ragweed and be eating the stem all the way to the ground. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's not the, the, the stem portion that they're after. It's the very tender ends, the new shoots, the new leaves um, that they're putting on that's the con they're concentrating on that portion of the plant. I think yeah. anybody who goes out and like, let's say they have an old field or they, or they have, you know, a woodland that's got a lot of forbs underneath. Well, you can see that very easily that they're eating some portions of the plants, but totally avoiding others. They're concentrating. And yeah. so all that to say, 
let's hit some of these. Um, I think you're looking at this, the, the, the same uh, graph as me, but let's kind of go through some of these just common plants or forbs that people are going to encounter um, and talk about crude protein levels and then acid detergent fiber um, yep. of these things. Absolutely. Um, one thing to point out, a lot of this information we're getting ready to get is from the great research out of the Craig, Dr. Craig Harper, University of Tennessee um, Extension, and his book is uh, Wildlife Food Pods, Early Successional Plants. His research uh, is just amazing for this specific information when it comes to crude protein in native species. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I definitely, I, I, I only say that because I, I want to shine light where the people have done the work. I have no problem giving props where it needs to be given. So, yeah, um, for sure. That's I mean, where this, we're at this, here. This, Not trying to take credit a, for his work, but this is amazing. No, this is um, a fantastic resource for, for people to be able to learn from, utilize, and just get a really well rounded um, basis of, of yeah. land management. One thing you say about that concentrate foragers um, or selectors, and I think about for people to ID uh, or to understand, is like I think about pokeberry or pokeweed, Mm -hmm. a lot of people call it, um, where we've made posts in the past where um, people like, we'll post a picture where deer absolutely torching it. And I'll be like, man, this is just free food right here. Deer loving it. And then other guys say, I never see them eat it on my property. And I'm like, it, you're probably looking at the wrong time or there's an abundant amount of it out there and you just don't notice it because mm-hmm. you could sit there. Mm-hmm. If you just watch the plant, like there's certain spots on the Prairie Hollow property or family farm where I'm like, there's going to be pokeweed come up and they're not going to touch it until August or July. Mm-hmm. But then there's other food plots where I can say that one, when it comes out of the ground, they're going to hammer it for some strange yeah. reason. And it'll be like that one never makes it to a stem or berry, and another one will be get hammered as soon as as soon as it branches off, um, and they can and it's up over their head they'll hammer it, and so you just never know, and that's the importance of diversity. Uh, jewelweed being another one, uh, common ragweed like you mentioned, like you can see them hammer hammer common ragweed in June, and then lay off of it for a while. And then all of a sudden jump over on jewelweed during July and hammer that until they can jump over something else in August. Like there's an importance of that diversity. Uh, and that's why it's so crucial to have that and, and to understand the importance of that because you can save yourself a pile of money by promoting these Forbes. You can save so much and then you can be offering again and this is we're talking right now food value but there's cover value out of these plant species as well and then you know you, you talk about like timing of some people being out there well the other thing is too i've also seen in, in on properties where this type of vegetation is so limited deer are browsing it so heavily i'm not able to identify it because like there's not a leaf on it like i i i don't all i'm getting is a stem i see that they're eating it but a green stem doesn't tell me exactly what that plant is absolutely it's like you don't have enough of it yeah yeah you need more create more all right Um, jump into it i just realized wowzer we're letting time get away from us (laughs) okay poke weed talk about it you mentioned it yeah protein level 32 acid detergent fiber 12 obviously extremely selected by deer yep 
yep, has yep, great yep. cover for broods um, in its structure. It's a kind of umbrella type shape. Yeah, I always is seen in like if, if you cut a tree in the timber, um, you get a little bit of sunlight in there, and like right where the root wads at, boom, you yeah. pretty much have or or uh, you know you push in a food plot, and all of a sudden there's some dirt clods and and yes. and stumps. Uh, yes. where you push them all together and then all of a sudden there's pokeweed. It really follows that disturbance, uh, mm-hmm. seed value for birds. Like birds are like the seeds as well. Um, deer love to rub on it. If that's your thing. Yep. Um, it's just, <laughs> it is, it's one of those, my goodness, it's an awesome plant. Um, and you know, those numbers may not mean much to you. And so I will flip back a few pages in his great book um, mm-hmm. and just, I'll just go to what, what's something I'd go to alfalfa. Everybody knows deer typically like alfalfa. So crude protein typically of alfalfa on average, about 24%. Okay. Um, ADF being about 35. So crude protein is really good, but it yep. also has a lot of fiber. Or a mm-hmm. lot of lignin, so it may take a little bit more to break that down. So compared to pokeweed, yeah, which is next twelve. One. <laughs> <laughs> Old field aster. We just talked about this one. Twenty-three point yep. three percent crude protein has detergent fibers. Thirty point seven. Yeah, still highly selected by deer, but a lot of it is going to be concentrated on certain portions of the planet the fiber content is that much higher yeah so th- then this again like you know there's correlations between you know crude protein some acid detergent fiber but like, yep. this this really goes to show how concentrate selectors they are yeah um and 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 so. just so you know these crude protein adf values are from hand selecting uh, basically where a deer would eat. So it's not just cutting the whole plant down and running all through mm-hmm. and getting the average. It's, mm-hmm. it's selecting the young tender ends that a deer would be selecting when they're foraging. Yes, yes. So, What's another one on the food plot side I, of things, Adam? That's a good comparison back and okay. forth. Okay, um, you could go with, uh, you know, Ladino clover. Everybody's put that on there uh, or had planted Ladino clover most likely. Crude protein's mm-hmm. 31, 31 average percent. Uh, ADF is 17. Nice. So I, I think ADF for me, when it, I guess trying to think of a, of a of a way to really understand that is would be like either putting it in your hand or chewing up chewing it up yourself. You could take pokeweed, and I would not do this, but you could take pokeweed and just throw. If you put a leaf in your mouth and start chewing it, it'll almost dissolve. While uh, alfalfa would take a lot more chewing to break that down. Um, Ladino clover, same thing. You'd start chewing it, and it'd turn to mush in just a few bites. Um, and and so, like, Old Field Acer, take a little bit more chewing or grinding to get that broke down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's your hillbilly analogy on ADF <laughs> breaking down. Just put it in your mouth start chewing on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blackberry. Yeah. 19% crude protein. As d- detergent fiber, pretty much nineteen as well. Yeah, and and a re- there's a reason why uh, the blackberry is the reason why I gave that uh, when I reference mm-hmm. uh, selecting because people when you think of blackberry you think of a big thick stem with thorns straight walking through. We're talking about the young ender, uh, young tender ends and leaves. 
um, being that. Absolutely. So phenomenal, yep. phenomenal plant to have. Um, common or agweed, crude protein, 17, um, 17%, uh, 23 ADF. Um, just some, just some great stuff. So just a golden rod, um, crude protein is 16%, yep. ADF 26. Yep. So, I want to, I want to reference I, something here. Uh, right, go ahead. If you're still well, on I was just going to say real quick, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just throw out all the examples that were really highly selected oh, um, yeah. that had crude proteins that were way above goldenrod is definitely selected but it's got it's it's sixteen percent. So so go back to the numbers um, that we threw out earlier of the dietary requirements for deer. That is adequate. Yeah. So when you see that, promote it. You don't want just giant fields of just straight goldenrod. Sometimes we can see that, but it's a species that they will forage on the right times of the year, and it will be of value in other ways as we talk about the podcast later on. Yeah. I want to reference an invasive species that's on this chart, Cerisa lespedeza. Crude protein, mm-hmm. 22% on this test site. So this was done in Tennessee where he did this testing. Um, 22%, 22.2% crude protein, while the ADF is 326 So you can see it's got a very high ADF compared to, like, pokeweed, which if you pick up those plants, if you were to compare the two, you would quickly under- understand and see the difference. Cerise mm-hmm. mm-hmm. has a much more uh, wood – I almost – Almost don't like, based on the definition of a forb, to use that, but you could almost say it's got a more woody stem than a than pokeweed, obviously. So, right, um, right. yeah. Anyway, um, so a lot of great, a lot of great things on that list um, that are just phenomenal deer food. Yeah, there, there's there's no there's no like I don't think convincing that we have to do any further to say deer eat forbs, right? Yeah, yeah. Another yeah. another important aspect of forbs is is not only the fact that they are herbaceous and not very woody so again they're palatable but the other def- part of the definition i want to highlight is that they're flowering so when we're talking about significance to quail and turkeys mm, yeah. if they're flowering then they're bringing in pollinators well and insects and, and a whole host of other um not- you know arachnids everything that those species need to forage on. Absolutely. And not only just the flowers, like they can be attracting insects even when they're young and tender and green. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. you could have phenomenal. Host plants. When you've got these host plants or these forbs that are young and tender green growing in the late winter into the spring, they're attracting insects. Flowering during the summer, they may be attracting a different assortment of insects. And mm-hmm. then and then if you have diversity of forbs, you have plants that are attracting insects from basically when insects are coming out uh, and really active all the way through to frost when they're not as active. Yes. And so mm-hmm. from a food standpoint for, for birds, through the roof. And you're not going to yep. have that with grasses. No. No. That's why and, it's important if, them... you're, if you're managing for quail that you're not too, or pheasants or any kind of bird species, that you're not focused too much on the grass. Yes, for I, sure. I, I, in, in a lot. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say a lot of these plants, like they're, you know, if they have a hollow stem, that's what the wintering grounds is for they're hosting these insects to winter it winter. 
so so like they they're not just the food attraction um from the flowering standpoint they play that much more critical of a role um you know in, in just just again life cycles it's not just deer food it's yeah. not just insect that you know turkey's going to eat there's so much more to to the role that a forb can play in the grand scheme of things absolutely absolutely um cover standpoint oh man you know anything from daisy flea bang being one one to three foot tall um which typically comes on early in the early in the summer late spring um tons of blooms that can attract a ton of insects. So you've got it from a standpoint of, I mean, one three foot tall plant at the peak of its, at the end of its peak uh, in, in early summer and midsummer uh, can be pretty good, decent cover, especially for a turkey, maybe not Mm -hmm. ideal for a deer, but it's still not ankle high clover food plot. Uh, And so it's, it's great. Um, You've got sneezeweed, which I've seen sneezeweed up belt high, which is plenty yep. high for a, a deer bedded down. Uh, and you got to think about it, too. This is a lot during the summer months when forbs are really going crazy. Forbs are great in the winter um, if they're mixed and diverse with some brambles and some shrubs. Um, a field of straight forbs uh, during the winter months is probably going to be pretty barren um, if, if you've got heavy snows. Now down here where yep. we're at, we could probably get away with it, and not be too sure, bad. Sure. Um, yep. But from a standpoint of cover from sneezeweed, that's phenomenal uh, summertime bedding uh, or cover, uh, especially with food value that's through the roof. Yep. Common yep. ragweed, you know, if you're looking at common ragweed in some bottom ground, it could be five, six foot tall. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, even out on upland sites, pretty dry sites, you get up to three foot tall from, from deer standpoint, yeah, you might want something a little better, but from a quail and turkey standpoint, not sure you'll find much better. Right. For sure. And we, we broke it down, you know, one to three foot category, three to five foot category and five foot and higher. And and we're going to give you these examples like I'm doing right now, but it's like, so many people think of Forbes as just inferior cover. And we're not, again, just like we talked about the grasses, we're not, we're not talking about a monoculture of all Forbes that we want on the landscape. We're talking about, Hey, there's some that are one to three foot tall. Commonly. There's some that are three to five. There's some that are five and more. Yeah. But when we talked about the fact that grasses are, are, um, decent cover mixed with some Forbes and mixed with shrubs and some, maybe trees that have been cut or younger saplings. This is where we get all of the diversity. Um, so, so often uh, that we, that we talked about the, the plant communities across a, a landscape to produce the right cover, but it is just, it's nice to think and say, okay, what's something that would grow one to three foot tall, yeah, three to five foot tall. And, and yeah. my gosh, there's, there's some that are five, Plus, absolutely, there is. Yeah, but you hit, you hit the one to three foot category. What's what about three, three to five? five you've got old field aster. Obviously, we said that earlier, um, early in the podcast. Bone set. Um, another one kind of comes into mind that is kind of that three to five, depending on is some of our native sunflowers, Maximilian sunflower, which mm-hmm. can get maybe five foot tall, 
but a lot of times in some of our dryer sites, you'll see it only be three to five foot um, to where uh, just phenomenal if you don't want that because you never want a field of five foot tall only plants because it's just too rank for a lot of species um, and too tall, especially like quail trying to fly out. Um, right. And so right. that three to five is, is definitely important. Um, and so I think that you can throw jewel weed into, into the three to five foot category and, and some bottomland stuff. We haven't really mentioned a lot yeah. of bottomland, yeah. but jewel weeds one, um, or even, uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking here. I mean, um, a lot of our blazing metal. stars you could say yep. are, are, are great for that three to five foot range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, you know, so th- then the mix is great. You go with a five plus, five foot plus, American burnweed, even American horse. Oh, you've got it on there. I see it later. Yep, yep. Um, dog fennel, giant ragweed, mare's tail or horseweed. Uh, a lot of people call it goldenrod, wing stem um, are all just uh, that five foot awesome that people would think uh, sometimes overlook. Mare's tail gets a bad rap from crop country people, but it's still a native species following uh, um, following disturbance typically or abandoned fields. Yeah, th- there's there's been uh, there's a field that's walking across down in Oklahoma, um, and it was a mixture of goldenrod, ragweed, and mare's tail essentially. And um, I mean, it was it was up to my eye level, mare's tail, and then goldenrod was just underneath that kind of shoulder height. But I mean, it was there was deer all in it. Now there are some other shrubs and woody components mixed in, but primarily those two species made up, made up the lion's share of that field. And, um, it was heavily utilized by deer (laughs) during December. I honestly think, uh, if you wanted to manage and just say, uh, you know, how to maximize my property for diversity of species, you could say, just go out and try to promote shrubs, forbs, and healthy trees and fight back the grasses. And I think a lot of people, if they just did that simple thing, removing grasses, would see an explosion of wildlife, especially bird species, on their property. Um, because you're probably yeah. never going to get rid of all the grass, especially the native variety. Like uh, even mm-hmm. broom sedge or little blue stem, like, yeah, you know, you know. If you just had a few clumps of that scattered around, that's still great. Uh, if you're promoting the forbs and the grass or in the shrubs, man, you'd be you'd be pretty pretty well set. And I and I think so many times people want to just promote grasses. You know, there's um in a comparison standpoint between the grasses that we talked about. One of one of the things we mentioned is the lack of forage, but just their ability to become very rank. Oh, and totally. It's super dense at ground level, lots and lots of thatch. Um, whereas forbs, you can have old fields, and if again they're managed appropriately, that thatch buildup just doesn't really occur with the forbs. Yeah. Um, not nearly to the extent that grasses can become so rank, very unusable for many wildlife species. But the the forbs don't you, don't you don't fight that nearly as bad yeah and it was food and cover at, at the same times yeah um the other thing i love about just the forbs is man it's 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 honestly just kind of humbling to go back and think about like god designed it that 
in the spring, you had the flush of the Forbes at this same exact time that, you know, turkeys were needing refuge for, for ground nest. Quail were beginning to, um, you know, begin breeding and they needed cover as they're traversing the landscape, ranging out. Fawns are being dropped and they also need the cover and then the young forage to begin foraged upon. It's like this thing was designed so right. And and if you're thinking grasses does that, you're wrong. If you're thinking shrubs do that, well, they play a role, but it's not all you can't you can't accomplish it all just with shrubs. You can't accomplish it just with trees that we'll talk about no. in later weeks. Yeah, Forbes just play such a oh. fundamental begin, like the beginning of life for so many different things. Yeah, got to have a Forbes base for sure. So let's talk a little bit about management, promotion, enhancement, yep. all the things. Um, one of the great things about Forbes is it's just it's so many of them are food that also provide a lot of cover, and so we're really maxing out the acres. We're we're doing things that a lot of the other plant communities can't do from this long of a window or this big of a window from, from early in the spring to late in the fall. Um, and even on, on into the winter. Um, so it's a huge thing to promote Forbes. If you don't know a lot of your native ones, you should learn them. Um, and there's a lot of easy ways to manage for them. Um, one of the most beneficial ways is, is just by increasing your disturbance, whether that be prescribed Mm -hmm. fire, grazing, uh, those being the main two, there's dormant season disking that we utilize. Uh, mm-hmm. But prescribed fire, let's talk a little bit about prescribed fire. Um, so many times you see people burning during the dormant season when it's uh, it's easier. It, it feels like you can you can go from from fire line to fire line and burn off all vegetation, and you're like, "Ooh, success!" But a lot mm-hmm. of those fires are promoting grasses, and so. If you can try to incorporate some growing season fires to promote those forbs, um, that's that's crucial. Those late summer, early fall fires to try to knock back some of your rank grasses. So you're typically doing that in uh, during your dry season when you're like, oh, it's hot and dry this summer. That's probably a good time to go promote some forbs. Absolutely. I think of just if, if you're looking to diversify things, one, you change up your, your disturbance time, but burning covers so much ground and it opens the like, canvas, I guess, for just the new species to come through. And so many of the Forbes species that you don't see on a common basis yeah. that, you know, the rare things, you know, they require fire just to be able to have a seed germinate um it has to go through that process and so you can just get so much more rich species diversity by burning incorporating that into your management regime and there's not a tool that i'm aware of that you can cover so much ground so fast um and it be so impactful for vegetation you know you you can go out and you can run a chainsaw for an hour you can get a lot of stuff done even if you're extremely proficient, but the number of like the individual trees that you, you know, let's say manage or impacted, isn't going to be nearly the same amount of species as an individual that can come back after fire and provide something Absolutely. for wildlife. Like it, it, there, you're just not going to find a tool better than prescribed fire for, for, for production, in my opinion. No, uh, I think, one of the other big ones that we use a lot on like uh, 
open ground or old fields or prairies type. And I should be really, I should really emphasize, um, not necessarily your virgin prairies or native prairies, but areas that you maybe, let's say, planted uh, or a CRP contract is up, but you want to mm-hmm. keep it in this con, keep it in this. Probably prescribed fire mixed with. If you want to do the prescribed fire in the winter months when it's cooler and you can feel a little bit more controlled, do that. But then follow it up with the dormant season disking. That yes. little bit of disturbance would promote some of these species, specifically like common ragweed or giant ragweed, if it's a lowland site, to get. Um, more beneficial plants rather than just the rank grasses. And don't be like when you're looking for forb production, you know, don't the, the first things that come back honestly are oftentimes some of the most impactful ones like common ragweed. You, you don't really have to do hardly anything fancy to get common ragweed. And it's, it's way above and beyond like sufficient for wildlife usage when it comes to for production. It's like, you know, people want, Oh, I want these beautiful flowering things like ragweed. I get excited when I see it, but it's not the most beautiful forb that's out there. But when I see it, I know that it's doing and it's working for the purpose of having forbs in, yeah. in those areas. So don't, Absolutely. don't underestimate it. If even yeah. if it doesn't have a beautiful showy flower. Absolutely. Um. Yeah, I mean, what else do you want to add when we're talking about Forbes? We've we've went on for an hour and almost twenty minutes about <laughs> Forbes. Um, I know. We're just the year-round benefit. You know, like I think a lot of times people forget that a lot of Forbes are green this time of year. I've got Forbes mm-hmm. in my yard, at edge of sidewalks that I haven't. I purposely avoided them late in the summer because I wanted to see what they did through the winter. And they're right. still green as a gourd, four four inches tall. That if there was a deer to walk through, it's great food. Um, yeah. And so it's not the kind of food that you're going to think like, oh, I'm going to go late season hunt over a forb field. Um, but it's the unappreciated fo- food um, that's there that even during the winter months can provide benefit, but then you know outcompete almost anything during the summer months. So you look at forbs from January through. February, January, February. Yeah, that's a long span. January through February, um, you might have a little bit of green vegetation um, that's growing that can provide forage, but it's more from the benefit standpoint that late winter, uh, January, February can have pretty good cover depending on what kind of forb we're talking about. Um, so not not bad cover. Uh, probably not. Probably the worst month of the the worst two months of the year for forage. Is January, mm-hmm. February for Forbes. Yep. March, they start turning it on, and you're going to start um, seeing a lot of green vegetation, Forbes growing from March, April, May, June, July, August, all the way th- from those, all those months. There's going to be massive amounts of food produced with uh, diversity of Forbes. Um, and you can, it will probably drop, and you won't see as much benefit during August or as much available during August, September, October, November. Um, but it's still there. There's still green vegetation yeah, that can provide for sure. forage. Cover standpoint, phenomenal. Uh, Very high. You know, it's just growing and growing and growing and growing. So it's you've got that diversity of, of species that can provide great for or great cover. So it's it's phenomenal through early summer all the way through late summer, early fall, um, and then you know December. It's not 
incredible, but it's certainly not uh, laying flat or shouldn't be laying flat and providing zero benefit. There's always some benefit with diversity of native forbs. Yeah. I mean, we, we have seen, we're not talking necessarily like species richness, um, but more or less functionality of a lot of forbs. Um, when we have implemented by like, uh, old field management by removing non-native cool season grasses. Yeah. And I like, you don't, you, you may not believe us unless you've tried it. Um, and, and every soil and seed bank is different, but remove the cool season grass, watch the forbs come and watch how wildlife react yeah. to the forbs then being present. Those exact same acres that were once pasture or a hay field or just a corner of a field that's like an odd area, spray it out, remove that grass, and watch what happens. The forbs will come. Absolutely. Guys, hopefully you enjoyed it. And, uh, man, follow along. Next week we'll cover shrubs or trees. Haven't decided yet, but uh, we covered grasses. Now we covered forbs, and we'll roll right into another one next week. And, uh, man, send us an email. Let us know what you think. Root us on um, or shoot us a message on Facebook or Instagram. Matt, travel safe That's back. It. Will do. Will do. Appreciate everyone listening. Yeah.